Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 208. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach, and I'm happy to be joined again by Mr. Robert Deagle. Robert, how's it going, man? Good. I'm just here in Singapore. Woke up drinking my Kopi O, which is local for coffee with no sugar. (laughs) Great way to start the morning, right? You know, you wake up, you roll out of bed, get your coffee in, and then immediately just begin podcasting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, good, good start to a Saturday. Absolutely. And I mean, I got some bad news for the listeners. The topic du jour today here is not Star Wars related, which I know is going to disappoint a lot of people. Maybe maybe in the future we'll come back to Star Wars. But <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it, it's a well that never runs dry. I, I got to admit, I am a little bit salty because, you know, I mean, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into putting this thing together, right? And I polled people recently about what is their favorite episode ever that we've ever done. And by far, the runaway number one choice was Deagle Defends the Star Wars. <laughs> that's awesome holy shit i love that um i'm, I'm honored <laughs> i think i might have missed my calling here with this podcast i think we might need to do like a hard pivot into media analysis or something because clearly that's where the clicks are but anyway so there you go the reason why my guess that it became the number one is because it's such an outlier overall that it really stands out and the people that are like that are really going to like it. I'm sure like 75% of the audience did not watch it. <laughs> but those that did really liked it. So that's my guess. I think you're exactly right. I think that, you know, th- this is the challenge we struggle with as we're putting this thing together. It, you know, when we get guys like you on the podcast, it's it's hard to pick a unique topic because you guys share so much information. I mean, how can I, when I'm talking to someone like you, how can I attack this and get a new subject out when you spend so much time making stuff out there? How can I find something new? And I got to say, like talking to jujitsu people about the Star Wars prequels is a very unique and novel topic that hasn't been done to death yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, anyway, so do you want to let's start on uh, one of the topics we were going to discuss today? Yeah, let's do it. Which one do you want to do first? So we had a few ideas, but they're all kind of thematically related. So I'll turn it over to you. And why don't you kick this off? Yeah. So the first topic, like the initial topic that I, I wanted to talk about was about like basically a discussion of what is stalling. And when I say what is stalling, I want to be like very clear, like the word stalling, just like any other you know, word with some degree of ambiguity can be used to describe any number of possible things, right? Like that's providing like a, a definition of the word stalling isn't very interesting to me. In fact, I would argue it's like borderline, not even borderline. I'd say it's, it's impossible, right? We're not here to do that, okay? What I want to do is instead is I want to take a look at how we can look at what stalling is, maybe we don't have a perfect definition that encapsulates all possible meaningful definitions of what stalling might be on like a universal level, but we have a good enough grasp of the concept that we can then use it to meaningfully structure rule sets, right? Because ultimately, if jiu-jitsu is a sport, which it obviously is, right? It's important that when we say that something within the sport is stalling, that there's some meaning behind that that refs can enforce with objectivity or a measure of objectivity that goes beyond just like complete ambiguity and ref favoritism. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably, like you said, it's a tricky thing to pin down. Reminds me of the discussion about base. You know, everyone in jujitsu talks about base all the time. But if you sit someone down and say, can you actually explain to me what that is? It's kind of a bit of a mind fuck for a lot of people because we take these ideas for granted. And stalling is another example of that too. I mean, everyone, I think intuitively probably thinks they know what stalling is. But if you were to ask someone to really explain it, it gets a bit harder. Like it's it's not as simple as, well, this guy's not moving. I I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you might not be moving that have absolutely nothing to do with stalling. The most notable being you can't move (laughs) because your opponent is tying you up, right? Yeah. So what is happening there when people feel like, oh, I know what stalling is, is that in a sense, they in fact do. So, okay, let's take it back a little bit and get kind of like I'll briefly discuss some like philosophy around language. So like for most of the history of Western philosophy, when people were looking at like a concept such as like stalling or what is justice or whatever, what they were looking for was essential underlying qualities that they could use to identify all given instances of that, you know, quality that they were looking for. Right. So in Plato, for instance, you see this in the theory of the forms, right? So the theory of the forms is that for every given object in the world, there is a perfect form of that object that has all the base essential qualities of that object. So you could say the form of a chair exists in the world of the forms. And if one could identify the form of chairs, one could identify all things as being chairs, right? And at first you go, okay, I obviously know what a chair is, right? But then you say, okay, what if there's like a rock and you're sitting on it? It's like, is that a chair? It's like, well... You know, it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. And then later in philosophy, a way of looking at language that I like much more was proposed by Ludwig Wittgenstein, where he analyzed this sort of like essentializing view of definitions. And he found it really lacking because, for instance, like when we talk about something like stalling and there's ambiguity, there is it's so hard to have this like perfect formal definition that applies to all cases. What he instead said was He offers two sort of side-by-side suggestions to look at definitions. The first is that he doesn't want you to look for underlying essential qualities, but rather uses in language. So he famously said the meaning of a word is its use in language. So for instance, when I say, this is going to sound kind of strange, but if you think about it, it starts to make a lot of sense. The word blue, am I pointing to essential qualities of, if I point to a blue car, am I pointing to essential underlying qualities of that blue car? You might think so, but actually on a level of like communication, if I'm speaking to another person and I say, that's a blue car and you say, yes, I see it. I see that also as a blue car, right? Like What's happening there, it's not so much about universal truth, but rather more so the capacity the word in the sentence offers us to communicate effectively, right? So getting very like abstract here. The other thing that Wittgenstein spoke about was family resemblance. So when we have a concept such as, let's say, stalling, right? Don't think of it as being, oh, all instances of stalling are exactly the same, and therefore they share the same underlying qualities. Rather, it's more something like members of a family who each have a similar feature with another member of the family. But per- And if you can imagine like a, what is it, like a Venn diagram, right, with like eight circles, right, going down a line. Perhaps the one on the farthest left and the one on the farthest right, they don't really have anything in common per se, right? But as it goes down the line, you find that each person connecting to the other has something in common with the previous and then the the next in the chain, right? And so that's the notion of family resemblance. And basically, like, I think when people think of stalling, okay, they understand because they've been trained in the use of the English language, how people use that word in language. They've identified examples. They've seen examples of how it's used in language. And that example is somewhere along the chain of family resemblances of possible uses of the word of stalling, possible coherent uses of the word stalling. And the trick is we aren't just looking for a possible coherent use of the word stalling, right? So for instance, I want to talk about the Kane and Duarte-Craig Jones match. If you watch 
that match and you say Kanan is stalling, you could say that. But the question is, is what Kanan did there an extraordinary example of stalling that requires some like rule change such that the negatives he got were like justified, right? So I'm going to argue like, no, I, I think the, the negatives he got were kind of insane, uh, you know, but yeah, 100%. And probably a good time to remind people if they're not familiar with uh, your stuff that uh, your background in addition to jujitsu is philosophy, which is why you know all of this stuff. But yeah, I agree with you that I think a lot of what you're saying is that when you're talking about how we use language, it's not just about what the word technically means in the dictionary, but also kind of how we intuitively understand and figure out what the other people are trying to say and imply, right? Like language is kind of fluid in a lot of ways. And sometimes words can have slightly different meaning, but you know, human beings are good at figuring out patterns and stuff. So we can often figure it out, right? If you say stalling, I might not have the exact same definition of you as to what that means, but we can kind of at least understand what each other is talking about. Is that kind of the, the route that you're going here? Yeah. So for instance, think of how a child learns a language. They don't like, you don't put a child in front of a dictionary and have them read every word. And then that's how they learn what those words mean. Child, uh, child, <laughs> it's early in the morning. Children, <laughs> children learn languages. I'm talking about language. Well, my, like I pronounce words incorrectly anyway. So like children learn languages through, they acquire them through like immersion and experience, right? Like they see how words are used in everyday language in order to forward the goals of the user of the word, right? So that's how language, well, that's one way we can view language as being acquired, right? Yeah. So this is all like, so when I was doing philosophy, I was very interested in Ludwig Wittgenstein. This is all like, it's all like Wittgensteinian stuff. And if anyone's interested in this type of like exploring this type of thought regarding like meaning, they could just look up Ludwig Wittgenstein, specifically like the later stuff, though, I think you should probably start with the earlier stuff to get a baseline. But anyway, so, so to bring it back to the specific jujitsu topic, okay, we have an idea of how we want to approach this topic of asking what is stalling in jujitsu. Before we talk about stalling, let's talk about what I think the opposite of stalling is, which is engagement. Okay. Stalling you know, on a general level, we can kind of think of as it's a way in which we can inhibit engagement. Engagement also being kind of difficult to define, but let's just broadly categorize it as doing jujitsu, more or less, right? When you're engaging in a jujitsu match, it's a jujitsu match. If you're engaging, you're hopefully doing jujitsu, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Without getting like too intricate with it, right? So engagement to me, doing jujitsu, to me, when I think of it, I think of if you look at someone, is what they're doing jujitsu in terms of like, do they have to have skill to be doing it, right? So for instance, an escape from a pin that takes skill, right? You can't just like, it's not like just doing nothing, right? Just where it's just lying flat on your back. That's not, is that jujitsu? No, it's not jujitsu. You're just like doing nothing, right? You're not expressing any skill in lying flat on your back, right? Maybe temporarily, and then you use that to bait them to do something, and then bang, you pop up, right? That, I could see that, but like for extended periods of time, if you're just lying there, that's not jujitsu. Similarly, if you're on top of somebody, and you're holding them down, and they're trying to get out, that takes skill. That's jujitsu skill, right? Holding someone down isn't just nothing, right? It There's a continuous stream of effort that has to be put forth in order to hold someone down provided even if they do suck to be honest i was gonna say provided they're good but even if they suck like you still need to like apply pressure in the proper places you need to like put wedges in certain spots right so yeah even if they suck you're still expressing skill maybe less but you still are expressing a certain degree of it right so engagement is to me what we want our rule set ultimately to encourage. We want the rule set to encourage the active engagement of the athletes. And the measure of that that I am suggesting is the degree to which what you are doing requires 
the expression of jujitsu skill. And then obviously, of course, you could attack this and say, well, isn't, well, what does that mean? What does jujitsu skill mean? I think that's where we have to sort of stop with the, like the intellectual analysis and kind of just like, look at what we're, and just like, look at what we're doing. Right. And, you know, when you watch a jujitsu match, if you are a practitioner of jujitsu, it's kind of obvious, I think, when someone is doing something that requires skill, as long as you've trained for a decent amount of time, right? Like when you see someone and they're mounted and they fight to get out, like you know that that was hard, right? If you see someone and they're mounted and they just lie flat on their back, well, do you know that that's relatively easy by comparison? You know, I mean, it sucks. They're in mount. Nobody wants to be in mount. But, you know, fighting to get out is a lot harder than just lying flat on your back right? Because one takes physical effort and more so than anything else, the expression of skill, which to me expresses you're engaging and therefore you're not stalling. So, yeah. Yeah. I think what's tricky about stalling when it comes to how we explain and put this into practice is it's a harder rule to enforce fairly than things that are much more obvious and mechanical. I mean, if we want to, for example, reward points for neon belly, we can kind of broadly define what neon belly means and where your body needs to be positioned. And if, hey, if that box gets checked, so be it, we award the points. Stalling is a little bit trickier because there is a degree of intent that has to be implied, right? Just because I'm not moving, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm stalling. There's a variety of reasons why, like I said, that could be the case, whether it be maybe strategically, if I'm in a dominant position, me pinning you is the smartest thing for me to do. Or maybe you've got me controlled and I simply can't move. I'm trying to, but I just can't. Or maybe it's a strategic thing and it's not that I'm trying to necessarily stall, but I'm trying to pit stop and grind you down or, or just throw off your rhythm. There can be a lot of reasons why someone might cease movement or forward progression without necessarily in their head trying to stall. So it's a tricky one for a referee to call because they've kind of got to guess at what the person's intent is. And that's why I think this one kind of gets debated a lot more. You know, it's it's a lot easier to kind of go down a rabbit hole and debate something like this where the referee's job is to guess the player's intent. That can be a lot harder than something that's purely mechanical where you can see with your own two eyes exactly what's happening and most people are going to agree on what happened, right? Stalling is much more uh, internal in terms of what's going on in the player's head. I, I don't fully agree with what you just said, because I do think you can identify like there are certain like mechanical cues, I think, as to like situations to determine whether someone's stalling or not. Right. Like, but I do agree that intent does matter, but I think more so on like a like a big picture scale in terms of like, I don't think that as a community we have ever or maybe will ever agree on what the point of the sport is. Right. Like. Some people are like, oh, it's the submission is all that matters. If you don't get the submission, like if you didn't submit me, you didn't really win, you know, which is, I think, a kind of a dumb way to look at it. But some people do think that. Right. And some people are like, well, you know, the point of the sport is to simulate a real fight, blah, blah, blah. So there's like a, a hundred different ways to view like what is the point of the sport? So that's, I think, where like the intense side comes in. But like in terms of like the ref officiating the match. Right. So. Let me tell you where I think, like, I think that this impulse to call stalling comes from. I think there's two really big examples of stuff that people call stalling in sport jiu-jitsu. The first, I would agree, is stalling. It's when someone's, like, on top and they're backing away, the like, for most of the match, especially in ADCC, and then over time they just, like, wrestle, right? I would say that is stalling because if you're, like, backing away and you have no intent to engage, like... Yeah, you're not like doing that's not jujitsu, right? Like you need to be engaging. In a jujitsu match, you need to be engaging, right? And if anyone says, but ADCC is not a jujitsu tournament, submission wrestling. At this point, they're the same thing. <laughs> anyway, so like the other type of stalling would be, and this I don't I don't think this is stalling, is like let's say I pass your guard um in side control and you're trying to get out and I'm holding you down. That's not stalling. I don't think that's stalling because like if you've ever trained or competed against someone your own skill level, it's fucking hard to hold people down. Like it's just not like, you know, like this idea that, oh, they're, they're just holding them down and choosing not to advance. It, it's such an overly simplistic way of looking at things. Like you don't know, maybe when I passed this guy's guard, 
I'm holding them down. And I feel like if I make any movements, they're going to get out. And the question is, okay, the question then becomes whose responsibility is it in that situation? I passed their guard, right? I'm holding them down. Is it my responsibility now to take further risks so such that I maybe let the guy out? Or is it the responsibility of the guy who got his fucking guard passed to do something to get out? I think that the responsibility to move forward another step shouldn't be on the person who's already taken the first step to move forward, regardless of whether that's top or bottom. Because again, I keep coming back to this because it's to me, it's all about engagement. Who is who is engaging? Hopefully they're both engaging, right? But if they're both engaging, then it's there's no stalling happening. So like, unfortunately, a lot of people don't, they don't want to deal with this or accept this. A lot of high level jujitsu is boring as fuck. <laughs> and that's just kind of part of it. You know, not every match is going to be Gary Tonin versus Husamar Poliaris. Like those are outliers. Most matches are going to be like Joao Miao versus Tomoyuki Hashimoto or Gunnar Nelson versus Jeff Munson. If you've never seen those two matches, go watch them. That's what most high level matches look like. And they're, they're interesting, but also like, you know, it's kind of boring too, right? So because you have two guys that are really good squaring off against each other. And of course, they're going to negate a lot of what each other is doing, right? Because they're both, they're both really good. So Yeah, there's some good observations there. And I, I should clarify too, there's different types of stalling. The type of stalling I was referring to was more when someone is just not moving. But there's different types. Like you said, if someone is actively disengaging and trying to avoid the fight, it's a lot easier to call that. I mean, what, you know, was it Caleb Starnes versus Nate Quarry comes to mind where one person is literally actively running the entire fight, right? At that point, you can safely project. But there's a point where not moving becomes... a strategic decision. And I agree with you. I've always found this to be an odd thing about the way that some jujitsu rule sets score. I found it strange that if you are the person in the dominant position, that in some rule sets, the onus is on you to keep advancing. And that doesn't, I mean, I get why from a spectator friendliness standpoint, someone might think, okay, we got to put this rule in because we want to please the fans. But from a, you know, why do we do this standpoint? I've always thought that, you know, if the idea, and again, we're kind of getting philosophical here, but the the thing about jujitsu that, that is kind of one of its fundamental things in a lot of ways is positional control. And sometimes, like you said, sometimes you've got a position just by the hair and you know that if you move just an inch left or right, the person's going to get out. And if that's the case, it is not in your best interests to, to throw all of that away. And that only becomes more important as your opponents get more and more skilled and high level, right? You can afford to make very little mistakes against a good person. And I do think that, you know, if jujitsu is intended to be about positional advancement and, and such, it should not really be the onus of a person who's already controlling the fight to control it better. We should think it should be the onus of the person who is losing to do something about that, right? There should be a sense of urgency for the person who's losing to get out and, and to move. So it does seem kind of odd that some rule sets would punish the person who's already winning if they decide to just keep winning the way that they were already winning, right? It, strategically, it's an odd thing. Yeah, no, I'm I'm in complete agreement with you. Yeah. And I think you're you're spot on with it. I think it comes from this desire to like make jujitsu a spectator sport. And like I've argued in the past on like I think I think on this podcast and on other podcasts too that that's kind of like it's sort of a bad goal. I know that sounds strange to people, but like the question is, is like, do we care more about the integrity of the art or do like, do we want this to be an expression of like competent grappling first and foremost, or is our priority on it being a spectacle? You know what I mean? It can sometimes be both and that's awesome. But if, if we ever have to choose between the two, like, geez, I hope we choose that jujitsu should be an expression of competent grappling, right? Like over spectacle, right? Like, because you know, if you guys know the history of catch wrestling, catch wrestling was once a legitimate sport, but it started to get boring for the fans. So what did they do? They're like, oh, let's just script the outcomes and 
just start doing backflips and now we have the WWE. <laughs> hey, nothing against the WWE, but you're right. It's a, it has turned into a performance environment because the focus has been on creating a show, which is, you know, from a financial standpoint, totally understandable. But at the end of the day, then you start to deviate away from, from what made the sport, the sport. Yeah. And a hundred percent, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Like I like the WWE, it's fun. I'm not like a hardcore fan, but like it is definitely fun. Like I've watched it and I will probably watch it again. Right. But the thing is, is like, you know, like I got into jujitsu not because like I thought that flying triangles were cool, although I did think they were cool. I got into jujitsu because I was like, I want to learn how to effectively control people on the ground, you know, and that's that pursuit is really, really fun, you know, and like. And yeah, maybe it's not the most entertaining thing to the fans, but, you know, does it always have to be? Like, I never hear, like, fans of, like, elite wrestling go, hmm, yeah, that guy won the gold at the Olympics, but did he do enough lat drops? Like, you know what I mean? Like, nobody yeah. says yeah. that. They, they just go, oh, wow, he fucking won Olympic gold. That guy is elite. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that, you know, in other sports, hey, a good, exciting game is always going to get more fan attention than one where not much happens. But yeah, you're right that generally people seem to be a lot harder on jujitsu athletes and MMA fighters as well when it comes to expecting a performance out of people. And that, I mean, again, it's understandable. And as a financial incentive, you totally get why the people setting up these tournaments would want to make things more interesting. But I mean, I mean, look, when it comes to effective combat, interesting is not always better. You know, I've, I've talked on the podcast a few times with uh, Rob Bernacki and some others, like in a lot of ways, especially as you get older, part of your job as a, as a combat athlete is to make the fight as uninteresting as possible, right? You want to take away variability. You want to make the fight predictable so that you don't get caught off guard by something crazy. And a lot of the time that means constricting your opponent's options until there's not much left for them to do. And if that means sitting on the ground and pinning them for five minutes, like, so be it. That's good jujitsu. But yeah, the rules are not always aligned with that at the moment. And that's an interesting uh, area where the commercial side of the sport, I think, is kind of diverging from the the reason the sport was created in the first place. And it's, it's hard to say if there's a right or a wrong answer. But yeah, I agree with you that I don't know if everyone will ever come to a consensus about what the right answer is. Yeah, I mean, so... What I think is a really good compromise here is that we can have a balance between like the spectacle and like the integrity of the sport, so to speak. So you've got super fight shows like Polaris and Who's Number One and Kasai. I heard they're coming back. I hope that rumor is true. And like you can have these super fight shows. And if you want the priority on those shows to be crazy spectacle shit, bro, I'm fine with that. That's an area for that, right? But when we're talking about ADCC, IBJJF, you know, other elite tournaments like Naga, you know, we want things to stay. I hope everybody knows that was a joke. <laughs> so like we want things to stay like about the sport, right? When I watch ADCC finals, my priority isn't how many backflips did the guy do before he got the win, right? I want to watch the match and just see what worked to win. You know, that is... The only thing that I care about. If somebody gets a submission, that's fucking awesome. But in ADCC finals, that is extremely rare. You're not going to see that very much. And there's no rule changes. There's no amount of negative points you give to people for, for pinning people. That's going to like, you know, magically increase the number of submissions. And I wouldn't even, and even if you could, it, it would destroy the integrity of the sport. And it would become about like flying triangles and arm bars and just like, I want to see what works. I don't care if it's flashy. I just want to see what works. And of course you can say, okay, most people don't. Well, then I just think those people don't like jujitsu. Like, you know, like jujitsu isn't always flashy, right? Sometimes it's slow and it's boring. I remember I said on a, a previous podcast of yours, I said like good jujitsu is a lot of the time it's very patient, right? Like as you develop in like maturity in your grappling i think what you come to realize is that like you can't always get what you want whenever you want it even if you're better than the person sometimes it's going to take time you have to be patient and you shouldn't be punished for being patient 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. In a lot of ways, you're punishing people for good strategy, right? You're basically, you're rewarding the performance and and the watchability aspect over the effectiveness of the art. And, you know, I would even argue that whether, you know, flashy dynamic stuff is more watchable and more entertaining, I would argue that, honestly. I mean, I enjoy watching a very, very slow, deliberate, well paced but very conservative match where you've got two people who are being very very careful because they respect the effectiveness of their opponent i don't need to see people just running around and doing backflips and doing crazy stuff i think there's something cool about the tension of like a zero zero match where just both people are just really really good at, at shutting down and nullifying the other person it's uh one of my favorite matches of all time was when Mackenzie Dern beat Gabby Garcia. That match was like, you know, it ended with a 0-0 score where Mackenzie won. I love that match and it, it was tense as hell. I mean, there wasn't a lot of crazy stuff happening in it, but just that that ability to shut down and nullify someone, I find very entertaining. And, you know, it, it's interesting because you look at MMA, right? I mean, I think a lot of the people who want to see flashy stuff in jiu-jitsu, like you said, we're probably never going to win them over. They'd probably be better suited watching MMA anyway. Way. But even in MMA, I think the fans have gotten more educated there too. There, there was a time when as soon as it, the fight went to the ground, the fans would just boo like a Pavlovian response. But now when it goes to the ground, people cheer and they get excited and they understand dilemmas and positions and they understand when one person's in trouble and they get excited about it. So I think fan behavior can be trained as well. Fans can be educated and maybe that's a different approach over trying to fuck with the rule set. Yeah, for sure. It'll be interesting to see come next ADCC where this sort of conversation goes. So for instance, at the last ADCC, off the top of my head, the match that I was most, like, excited by, like, mid-match was probably PJ Barch versus JT Torres. I mean, that was a fucking... When PJ hit that double, I was, like, fucking losing my shit. Like, as a fan of... Not even because I was rooting for PJ, per se. I'm a fan of both of them. I didn't really have a dog in that fight. But for PJ to do that to JT is insane. And it's, like... It was so hype because of the expression of skill. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't hype because of some, like, silly, I don't know, like, cartwheel, backflip, whatever thing, right? It was, like, just fucking insane because to do that against JT at that level is just, like, an absurd expression of skill. Another one was actually Barch versus Cade. That was another one. It was so many fucking moments in that match that were like, Jesus Christ, like, this is so high level. But... Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I feel like I've said everything I I wanted to say on this. I just, for me, where this conversation came from really was the Kanan Duarte, Craig Jones match, where I did have a dog in that fight. I was rooting for Craig, obviously. But that being said, like, I was just like, I was shocked at like how many negatives they gave Kanan. I mean, it was like, and I think Craig even agreed. I think after the match, he even said that. It's like, there, I've never seen. Like, I've watched, obviously, I wasn't watching them, like, live, but I've watched, like, pretty much every ADCC, right? Like, maybe not every match that's ever happened, of course, but, like, I've watched a lot, okay? And, like, I can't recall ever having seen that many negatives given in a match. And to be perfectly clear, Kanan passed his guard and mounted him versus, like, a really good example is Gunnar Nelson versus Jeff Monson. Go watch this match and ask me, who is stalling more, Kanan in the match versus Craig or Jeff in the match versus Gunnar? It's like, it's so obvious who's stalling more. And like the negatives they gave to Kanan, I just, I've never seen anything like that. There's no like consistent precedent for that that I'm aware of, right? And so then I have to ask myself like, If you're in an ADCC match, like, how do you guarantee that you don't get stalling goals? Like, you just literally have to never stop. You can't take breaks. Like, if you pass someone's guard and you mount them and you don't submit them within, like, 15 seconds, like, I guess you have to dismount. Like, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Like, so, like, that was where this sort of desire to have this conversation came from because it's like... Yeah, I wanted to see Craig win, but at the same time, I also, more than wanting to see any one person win, I want to see the sport have integrity. Yeah, I just, I don't understand, like, on what grounds they could have justified giving Kanan that many negatives. 
Yeah, I, th I think the trick, you know, like we were talking about, the thing about stalling is it's a bit trickier to call consistently than things like, hey, you're in this position. You know, that kind of stuff is much more visible, whereas stalling requires a bit of interpretation. And I think that can be a problem because it makes the referee's job inconsistent. And that's incredibly hard and honestly unfair for the athlete, right? A, an athlete needs to go in there knowing that they're going to be playing under consistent rules all the time. And this does, I mean, you see this a lot in MMA as well, right? Where just for whatever reason, the ref on one day of a week just decides to call things in a completely different way than most refs would in 99% of the situations. But it does happen. And that that is challenging for the athlete because now they don't really even know what rule set they're playing under because the rule set is kind of sort of variable. Uh, my brother, Matt, has referred to this factor as the referee variable, right? Where he talks about how, look, when you're preparing for a tournament, one of the things you might have to prepare for is just referee dynamics and referee variability. And, you know, you have to have your mindset in a place where you can you can continue to function and be resilient if the ref screws you or if something goes in a completely wrong direction because that does that does happen unfortunately yeah and the unfortunate thing with adcc is that you can't gain access to the rule book as a participant so the only people who i think have access to the rule book are like the head referees and so like ultimately if they say something about the rules it's like okay well i am I have no means by which to contest what you're saying. Like, <laughs> I have to take what you're saying on, on faith. So yeah, whereas IBJJF, you can read the rule book. It's online, which I definitely prefer that. But what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, something that you wanted to talk about that's tangential to this, reefing on submissions and cranking submissions before you have positional control, right? Kind of a related conversation. We've seen a lot of discussion about that recently about, you know, is it, when is it okay to try to inflict damage instead of trying to establish control? I'd love to get your thoughts on that because that's something that's come up a lot in modern conversation here. Yeah, so like there were two specific examples where people have had a lot to say on this. The first was Gianni Grippo versus Ellis Karadag. That was a while ago. That was like the Gianni Rippo match. And then the second one was, obviously this is more recent, Pat Chagoli versus David Vieira at EBI. And people have gone crazy over this. Like the response to this match has been simultaneously disturbing and interesting. And I say disturbing because like, so the response has been like really fucked up in my opinion. Like, first of all, yeah, Pat is overweight. He's like a overweight teenager, right? And people have like been fucking like attacking his body and stuff. Like, and I don't know, like they're taking it to like this really weird area where it's like, okay, they're unhappy with what he did. And so that gives them like a blank check to just say whatever shit they feel like saying. Like, <laughs> I don't know. People are calling him, I, I don't want to say it. People are coming like, Saying they really fucked up things about him, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, it's a good time to talk about this. I mean, admittedly, I am, ta I'm tangentially aware of this. I, I am aware of the blowback. I saw the clip. I haven't really studied exactly how people have gone into the controversy, but I mean, this guy is not like Taylor Swift, right? He's not a, a household name. He's just a kid and, you know, right or wrong. And that's, that's something that I'm sure you'll talk about in a second, but right or wrong. The fact that the, there's so many people have decided to basically dox this guy, chase him down and make him miserable. That's just a trend that I see a lot in online in general, but it, you know, jujitsu is no exception. I don't fucking like it. I, I don't like when people take umbrage to something that some guy did in a tournament, which, you know, again, you can you can debate whether he should have done it or not, and we will. But I, I don't like the fact that now this is basically turned into a, a witch hunt on someone for something they did in a competition like this. I feel like, you know, that is not an appropriate response, especially given that he's a minor, right? I mean, you know, take the foot off the gas on this. I don't think we need to ruin this guy's life. Yeah. And the thing about it is that it's a weird response too, because like, People act like this has never happened before. So anyway, let me, let's talk about like the ethics of finishing a joint lock in a competition. Basically, the way I would say it is, and I'll explain this obviously, is don't hate the player, hate the game. And like, at the end of the day, like this is something that I'm, I'm going to say something and then people will, a lot of people will disagree with like, well, I, I know a professional grappler who doesn't agree with this. Okay, cool. Great. You know, you know, someone that disagrees, I don't even think they're telling you the truth. The reality is there is literally no professional grappler or full-time grappler or high-level competitor who will not, as soon as they get a joint lock, attempt to break someone. So I competed recently in Thailand 
And in the first round match, I went against Dagestani guy and I got a backside 50-50 heel hook. And ultimately, I got the finish and there was a pretty loud pop. Dagestani guys do not like tapping. So I hope there was no serious injury, but there might have been because he, he definitely took too long to tap. So people were saying, oh, it's okay that you popped him because you gave him time to tap. I don't know what that means. I did not give him time to tap. <laughs> if when I got the heel, I could have popped him within 0.2 seconds, I would have done it, right? And that goes for all high-level competitors. Literally no high-level competitor is concerned with, when I catch a heel, am I not going to fuck this guy up? Now, of course, if you're going against somebody who you know you are much better than, that's going to change, okay? So if I were to compete against... So in the second round matchup of that same tournament, I went against a guy who before the match, they were like, oh, he's a really, really good wrestler, but he doesn't know anything about leg locks. Whereas the first round matchup, the Dagestani guy, I'd actually seen him finish people with heel hooks. Okay, so in MMA fights. So I knew he had some leg lock knowledge and they told me he was very resistant to tapping. So I knew I was going to have to put it on. Whereas the second guy, very good wrestler, apparently, but didn't know anything about leg locks. As soon as I caught his heel, his coach started yelling at him to tap. And I actually gave him time to tap. But I didn't do that because I only did that because I was so sure he was going to tap. I'm like, okay, the coach is telling him to tap. There, I don't need to put this on. But if he did not tap, I 100% would have put it on. Now, I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't think most high-level competitors want to hurt anybody. In our perfect world, no one ever gets injured. But at the highest level of competition, people are not primarily concerned with the health and well-being of their opponents. We all go into these matches knowing ahead of time, this is a combat sport. Nobody wants to get hurt and nobody wants to hurt anyone else. But the game that we're playing involves joint locks as part of the game. You can't, unless you want to fundamentally change the nature of the sport, which I think that's an, a conversation I'm open to having, actually. It's an interesting conversation, like the ethics of even allowing joint locks. But unless you are willing to have that conversation about fundamentally changing the nature of the sport, you can't like take out, when you catch something, people are going to blast it as quick and as hard as they can. And people will look at examples, for instance, like they'll look at my, the max that I had against the Dagestani guy. Why did it take longer to get the pop than Pat did against the guy, David? Because my guy defended way better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, he did the right things at first, whereas David, uh, he didn't do anything. He just lied there, you know, or lay there, whatever, right? He just didn't do a fucking thing. So that's why it looked as gruesome as it did. When you look at something that's like, Usually when you see like one of these like really quick, brutal finishes, first of all, it's it's honestly rarely as brutal as you think. So I could be mistaken, but I know for a fact. So Ellis Karadeg was not injured by Gianni Grippo and everyone freaked out about that. There was no injury. And then I, and this is the thing I could be mistaken on. I don't think David was injured by Pat. He was hiking the next day. So that doesn't mean there was no injury. There was definitely probably a little bit of damage, but like we're, we're talking about like, significant injury. I don't think there was. There could be. I'm not saying there definitely wasn't, but I don't think necessarily that there was. And the reason, the other reason it looks so brutal is because like there's such a big skill discrepancy here. Okay. Like Gianni and Ellis and Pat and David, like at least in terms of leg locking, Pat is way better than David. Like I've rolled with Pat before, actually. I rolled with him like two years ago when he was like 14 or something. And the kid has always been like, one of the most dangerous leg lockers I've ever trained with. Like, he's extremely impressive in that area, you know? And so it's like, he, you're taking someone who's a hyper specialist, who's super good in that area, and you're putting him up against a guy who, I don't know, David Vieira, he's a, a black belt, so he's probably good, but you're in 50-50, which is, that's Pat's area. And it's like, I've seen Pat fuck up really good 50-50 people in 50-50. So it's like, oh man, let's... That's going to be a tough day for almost anyone. So it's like, there's a huge skill discrepancy there. Yeah. yeah. Something that actually you of all people once said on, on this podcast was, I will never begrudge a competitor for doing what they need to do to win within the bounds of the rules. And that's how I look at the situation, right? I mean, I looked at the clip and the first thing that I think is, did Pat do anything that is outside of what the rules permit? No, he, did, he didn't 
bite the guy. He didn't pull a gun on the guy, right? He didn't bring in his buddy into a tag team on the guy. Like he just, you, you can argue a few things about the way he attacked the heel hook, but you're not arguing about anything that's relevant based on the rules. Kind of a way I would think of it when, uh, when we had Shanji Herbero on the podcast, he talked about this and he talked about how there's, look, there's competition jujitsu and how that works. But then there's also this romanticized idea of jujitsu. And in our head, what we all kind of in our hearts, you know, we want this to be and we envision it to be based on the way it was sold to us when we all came in as white belts, right? You know, the the mythology about how the little guy can beat the bigger guy and position over submission and all of that. And that's all great. And I mean, yeah, I believe a lot of that stuff, but it's not a religion. You know, there, there's no rule saying you have to play that way. If you get someone's leg and you don't want to to sit there and, and go through various control positions and you just want to finish the fight right there. I mean, in the context of a competition, there's no rule at all saying you, you can't do that. It would be different, I suppose, if this guy were in a gym with a bunch of hobbyists and you were doing this to, you know, a bunch of desk workers who don't know how to leg lock. That's maybe different. But in the context of a televised competition, he acted within the bounds of the rules, right? So I, I feel like when people are arguing this, they're not arguing based on what the rules say. They're arguing based on how in their head, what they, this romantic idea of what they want jujitsu to be, and they're attacking him based on that standard, but that's not the standard he was competing under. So what does it matter really? Yeah. So that's a really, really good point. I like that a lot. So when I think of this romantic notion of jujitsu, Someone who I think a lot about is Demian Maya, right? Like if you watch his MMA fights, there's like this really like cool sort of mystique about what he's doing where he's not really hurting people. He's just so good at he'll take them down and then he chokes them out. He will punch people. But generally speaking, what he's doing is probably the gentlest way to fight somebody, right? And people love to say, oh, jiu-jitsu is the gentle art, right? And I think that people, this romantic notion is like, People like to imagine that their favorite grapplers, people who they think are like nice guys, it's almost like a soap opera. They go, oh, th these guys are like the Obi-Wan Kenobi Jedi Knights of Jiu-Jitsu, right? They would never hurt Oh, anybody. fuck. Here we go. No, no. I'm serious, dude. <laughs> I'm not going to go deep into stars. Don't worry, don't worry. But it's like they go like, oh, this guy would never hurt anybody, right? Oh, like this guy just wants to, you know, win. And it's almost like, okay, I'll, I'll give you an example. Lachlan Giles is one of the most popular grapplers, right? And Somebody posted on Reddit. I fucking loved this. It was so good. It was Lachlan in an interview saying that the second he gets a leg, he's trying to break you, which is what you should be doing. But then people are like, when Lachlan says that, they will make excuses for it. And it's okay when he says it. But when Pat did it, it's not okay. And then what I have to just come to that is, okay, so you're telling me that Lachlan is just ontologically good and Pat is just ontologically evil. Like, what is going on here, right? Like, they're doing the same thing. Lachlan said he's doing the same thing, right? Like, so in the case of Lachlan, it's okay to do it because by virtue of him being Lachlan, it's okay for him to do that. But because Pat is Pat, it is not okay for him to do that. Like, Pat has been allocated to the role of evil bad guy, and Lachlan is Obi-Wan Kenobi, Jedi Knight, hero, good person, right? Like, this is this is the comic book ridiculousness of what we're dealing with, right? Like, rather than, like, okay, both of these people are competitors and they're trying to win, right? Like, I'm not denying that there are in sports sort of good guys and bad guys, right? Kind of, like, in a narrative sense when you want to watch it, Right. But that's a construction of the fans. In the sport itself, very, very rarely at a high level is anyone concerned with anyone but themselves. And and nor should they be. You're trying to fucking win. You know what I mean? Jiu-Jitsu competitors are more like Boba Fett than they are like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Anyway, I'll leave it with the Star Wars services. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because this, not the Star Wars thing, but just this general discussion, you know, it, it reminds me of when you see this in MMA, right? I mean, I can think of numerous examples where stuff like this has happened. Probably one of the, the most obvious is when uh, Frank Mir fought Noguera, got him in a Kimura. Noguera would not tap. I mean, what is Frank Muir supposed to do at that point? It becomes a game of chicken, right? If if you're caught deep in a submission and you're refusing to tap, at that point, it's a game of chicken. You're basically say, you know, you're giving your opponent two choices, either let go <laughs> because you don't want to hurt the person and potentially lose the fight that you came here to win or 
finish the job, right? And within the purposes of the rules, the goal the goal is not catch and release when you're competing, right? The goal is to get the tap and to win. And so it kind of is, if the other person is refusing to tap, they're kind of putting the the attacker in this awkward position where what else are they going to do, right? This is what you have to do within the, the realm of the rule set. You should not be surprised that if you're stuck in a submission, in a competition, the person's going to put breaking pressure on you. That's why they came here. And yeah, of all of the things... It just does seem particularly unfair that a a minor of all people is being singled out. I mean, you think of the perspective that this poor kid, granted, I don't know him. I mean, I, you know, maybe he's a terrible person. I have no idea. I've never met Pat, but I can relate to being a young kid and having, you know, people basically come after you like that. But man, when I was a kid, I never had the entire jujitsu community shitting on me like they are on him. I don't feel good for that guy. I I think it's unfair. And I think that a lot of adults honestly need to check themselves and ask why they think it's okay to treat a kid that way. Yeah. Well, like I said, I really think like without them realizing it, it has to do with this like designation of Pat as being ontologically evil by virtue of him being the bad guy. And like, it's a combination of like fat shaming, like people will, people will fight this till they're blue in the face. But I definitely think there's an element of that. They're like, oh, he's a fat guy and he hurt somebody. He's evil, right? Like the bad guys in the movies, right? Jabba the Hutt is fat and Luke Skywalker's in shape, right? Like, so like, anyway, but like, so, and I, I want to talk about another point that a lot of people have said, they're like, ah, this kid's the new Husamar Pagliares. Okay. So you're telling me, Pat, who has never held onto a submission after the tap is comparable to someone who has broken people <laughs> after they've tapped. Like, it's not the same thing, right? Like, if Pat had been holding on to that submission when the guy had tapped, yes, then that's a Polyarius type situation. They're not comparable. The reason why what Polyarius did, so it's like, it's like they look at a joint lock and they go, okay, joint lock, joint locks are bad. I don't like that. That's really mean. Anyone who does that is mean. And it's like, no, hold on a minute. The reason why what Polyarius did was wrong is because he didn't respect the tap. That it's not because he did a joint lock that is wrong. It's because he didn't respect the tap. So I think that there's actually, and I think that you'll be surprised to hear me say this, I think there's a very interesting conversation to be had about the wider ethics of joint locks, specifically leg locks in jujitsu. I don't think it's as simple as just saying like, oh, just just tap or like, you, you know, like we can flippantly dismiss the damage that's done with with leg locks. And insofar as that is part of our sport, I do think you have to accept that there will be damage done, right? But I do think there's another really interesting conversation to be had about, is this something that a sport should have in it? So the, the, way, the way I see it is there's two ways to look at this. So if we might say, like, for instance, like imagine that there was a move, a joint lock, that if done would cripple your, you know, if done to completion would cripple the opponent for life. I would definitely not want that move in sport jujitsu. Okay. I don't care how effective that is. The consequences of it are just too fucked up. But in not allowing that joint lock in jujitsu, you are opening up other grappling arts to take that skill, master it, and hypothetically like surpass jujitsu in a certain area because no one in jiu-jitsu is therefore equipped. If you've never seen a threat, you can't really defend well against it, right? So it's, it's this balancing act, right? And that's kind of like, obviously, we don't have a spine lock like that, but with leg locks, right? You have this question of like, okay, if we allow this, we will have a disproportionate number of injuries from it. I don't believe, if you go and find podcasts past, I used to say stuff like, oh yeah, leg locks are just like any other joint lock. I actually don't think that anymore. I think that there is a certain degree in which they are more dangerous than other joint locks because the knee and the leg in general is less dexterous than the arm and there is less leeway, okay? So I do not think that they are equally dangerous. I think leg locks are inherently more dangerous. There's greater damage done. The recovery is more difficult. There's less leeway, etc. right? So I do believe these are inherently more dangerous locks. But if we ban them, the safety of the sport will increase. That's definitely true, I think. But if we ban them, we are then shackling jujitsu athletes from being capable of understanding how these locks function. And then other grappling arts will not have this same concern 
for safety, and they will continue to perfect how these locks function. And then should the occasion arise that we ever compete, they're going to beat us with it, right? So it's a sort of a, that's an interesting philosophical debate there, right? Like, which do we take the side of pragmatism in, like, we want our art to be as functional as possible. So we allow these joy locks. Or do we take the side of, okay, we're going to have our art be a little less functional, but a little safer. And I tend to side on the practical side because I just want to know that jujitsu is going to work. And I don't think they're so dangerous that there's no way to do them with any degree of safety. But I am empathetic to both sides of this debate. I can see like a debate like, should we allow, I, I would be very, very okay with banning all leg locks in lower level competition, like a local Naga. I don't think a local, like an office desk worker should have to worry about never being able to walk again. You know what I mean? At a local Naga, right? Do you get what I'm saying? 100%, 100%. I mean, you, you know, I'm a hobbyist, so this is something I can relate to. And, and a big part of why I don't compete is because, look, I, I do jujitsu not for glory. I do it for fun. I do it because I like to learn and I, I like the social aspect, right? The reason I don't compete is I'm just not willing to accept the risk of injury that comes along with that. And a lot of people do this professionally or, it, you know, they they prioritize the, the competitive aspect more than I do. And I certainly don't begrudge anyone for doing that. But yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, when you go into that environment, especially when you've got a, you know, a, a bunch of weekend warriors warriors who have convinced themselves that they're samurai because they're blue belts, <laughs> you, you know, you get them in there and you give them tools like heel hooks. And yes, there is the possibility of, of damage being done. I'm generally not a huge fan of the idea of banning leg locks altogether. But one of the things that I do agree with on, uh, on the IBJJF front is deferring some of the more, uh, more damaging leg locks until the higher levels. I mean, toe holds terrify me even more than heel hooks. I mean, they just, it, those two moves, especially there is a risk of, of serious severe injury and i i'm personally not of the mind that you know white belts and even blue belts should be trying to rip those off in local competitions to try to win that's not to say they shouldn't be trained but just i do think that the stakes are higher right it's one thing to to pop your wrist or pop your elbow it's another thing to tear your acl that can have life-altering consequences, especially for people who have a physical component to their job, right? If you have to pick up and move around a lot of heavy things, you can take away someone's livelihood doing that. I've talked about this on the podcast before. I think it's one thing if you're talking about high-level consenting professionals competing at a big stage, but I think that it, it is reasonable to put a bit more restriction on people who are competing at the casual and hobbyist level. Yeah, so I definitely agree. And I just think that where I would like the conversation on this topic to go is less about like, so there was an article, I was asked to comment for it actually, and um, I did. It's on JIT's Times, I think. They interviewed like a bunch of like high level competitors and they asked all of us like, what do you think about the Pat situation? And every single competitor agreed with me, <laughs> like literally none, none disagreed because we all actually understand like. I don't go into a match like, okay, I'll give you like a really funny example of like how like, you know, people, you're fucked if you do, you're fucked if you don't. So like at trials, I lost to Keith Kikorian in the round of 16. He got me with a heel hook in 50-50 and I tapped like pretty much right away when he got me because I was like, he's going to, he's going to get it. Like, I'm not going to get out. And people were like, you tap really fast. You're a pussy. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, like, so if you tap before you get fucked up, you're a pussy. But if I didn't tap and then Keith fucked me up, he's a sociopath. It's like, what, like, <laughs> like, like I did, well, like, I knew I was going to get fucked up if I didn't tap, right? So, like, that's, in my opinion, like, I did the right thing given the situation. Like, yeah, I got fucking caught. That's what happens, bro. Like, Keith is really good at, at heel hooks. He got me. And so I tapped. Like, at that point, I think that we have to, like, normalize tapping when you're like people say that they're okay with it but then at the same time when people get tapped at a high level people are like you know in my opinion there's almost no such thing as a tap that's too early if you feel like you're fucked you're fucked and you should just tap 
Yeah, yeah. The way that I think of it, and I mean, especially as you get experienced, right? You you know when you're in checkmate before the hammer comes down, right? Like you know you're done. There comes a point where it's just a matter of time. But there is this one weird thing about jujitsu culture where we kind of expect people to basically fight until the last possible minute. That's not always productive though, right? Like there there comes a time when you know, okay, there is a 99% chance that this is going to end in a devastating fashion for me <laughs> if, if I don't put a stop to this right now. Part of being an experienced competitor or an experienced grappler is being able to detect when, look, okay, this is a really, really bad situation. And I, I don't understand why we fetishize, you know, going down on your sword, basically. That doesn't really make sense to me that that's something that uh, we punish people, like you said, if they strategically tap early to save themselves when they know they're not going to get out. And it just like seems like weird to me when on the other side, like, if the guy finishing the joint lock actually finishes the joint lock because the other guy didn't tap on time, now he's a sociopath and did something wrong. So it's like, it's like a weird thing. If we want, basically, as plainly as I would put it, is like, if the sport is going to allow joint locks, then therefore you have to be okay with the unfortunate reality of the fact that joint locks sometimes lock joints. And like that's what the move's going to do, right? It's one for the quote book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, this is a, a good chat here, but I guess I would ask if we were to tie all of this up. I mean, we've had some interesting conversations here on really basically, okay, what, you know, what can we do within the rules here? And why is it that some people have such a problem with, with people doing basically what they're allowed to do within the rules? I would say, you know, if you've got your magic wand, you can change all of the federations to do whatever you think is right. What do you think is the right answer here in terms of how people can properly interpret these things? Like, you know, okay, what is stalling? You know, when can you crank on a submission? Are there any changes that you would suggest we make? Okay, so I would do one thing in terms of rules to change stalling that probably would like, I think a lot of people wouldn't like, but I think would it would lead to better long-term outcomes, which would be that if there is body contact, you cannot give negative points for stalling. So like literally if they're touching each other, you cannot give negative points for stalling. I could maybe allow exceptions for if you're both standing and you're, you know, we've all seen those ADCC matches where you have two guys who are just like pushing each other for like 10 minutes and literally nothing happens. But in that case, both are stalling, right? But anyway, if you are in contact with someone physically, I wouldn't, no negative points. Whereas if you're backing away for like five minutes, okay, you should probably get a negative point there. Like you're literally not doing anything. And as for joint locks, that one is, I think, a lot – I think the joint lock situation is a lot trickier than the stalling situation. The stalling situation, I think, is as simple as understanding, like, what engagement is and rewarding and – rather, I should say, just not punishing people who are engaging. Whereas, I think, like, the joint lock thing is, like, there really is no perfect answer because you're damned if you – you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't in terms of allowing them. I would say that – Generally, how they exist is how I would – I wouldn't change anything in the rules regarding joint locks. I would just like – I would like if culturally we had a greater emphasis on – like, okay, two things. If culturally it was more okay to just tap, right? Like, just fucking tap, you know? There's – like, that tournament in Thailand when I caught that Dagestani guy – it should have been culturally okay. Like the reason why he didn't tap, I would have to imagine is because in his mind, he's like, uh, something about like looking down on tapping early, right? Like, dude, just fucking tap. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, you're better off tapping and, and going to train the next day. We're talking about a situation where the odds of you getting out are extremely, extremely low, you know? So I would prefer if culturally it was more okay. Let's just tap. I'm not saying don't ever try to escape. Maybe give it a shot or two, right? But after that, bro, it's it's done. You know, just fucking tap. And then if there was a greater emphasis in jujitsu schools on like, basically on like leg lock knowledge in terms of like defense, right? So I think like leg locks are, they're spreading throughout the jujitsu world pretty rapidly, right? Or that's been happening for a couple of years now. And I think that there's a lot more emphasis on offense than defense because offense is like, it's more exciting. I'd like if there was a little bit more emphasis on defense throughout the jiu-jitsu community because I think that will increase the overall level of safety, right? If you know when you're done, you know when you're caught, that's going to come from understanding like, you know, like for understanding the defense. You'll know, okay, I'm not getting out, right? And then you can tap on time. So if we take these two cultural things, 
if we're going to allow join locks in our sport, which is sort of as it currently exists, fundamental to jujitsu, to sport jujitsu, there's no rule change that can fix it. Like I've seen people propose, oh, what if we banned ripping joint locks? I don't even know what that means. Like, yeah, how, how do you even do that, right? Like, because at that point, you're kind of getting into intent again. You're asking the ref to basically make a judgment on the intent of what the grappler is doing. And beyond that, you as the person attempting the submission cannot always control what the other person does, right? Sometimes the other person does something real stupid. <laughs> and And so it's kind of unfair to always put the blame on the attacker. So that would be kind of a weird thing to do. Yeah, there's no way you could enforce that. There's no, there, it would be completely arbitrary. Like, what you know what I mean? Like, what is too fast to finish a joint lock? It's like asking, it is literally like asking, oh, did Mike Tyson punch that guy too hard? Like, what? Like, I don't, what? Like, what does that even mean? Like, that's the sport. That's what you're doing. Yeah, it, it is It is really, really weird that we expect people in a competitive environment like that to also kind of like, okay, you want to win, but you, you don't want to try to win too hard. <laughs> it's kind of, it is a weird expectation. Yeah, it's it's weird. But yeah, so that's what I would suggest regarding those two topics. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks a lot for coming by again, Robert, and thanks for, for getting up early here for me. Any closing thoughts or things you wanted to share before we tie this one up? No, I... I, I feel like I covered everything I wanted to regarding like both of these topics. Yeah, not, not really. I can't think of anything. Awesome. Well, hey, let me ask you another question then. If people wanted to to follow you or reach out to you or learn leg lock defense from you, how would they go about doing that? So the, the best place would be my Instagram and my currently super inactive YouTube, which I promise I'm going to start putting stuff up on again. It's Robert D-E-G-L-E-B-J-J. So that's on if you go to my Instagram too, there's a link in my bio to like my website where you can buy my instructionals. I have a couple of leg lock defense instructionals and, and other things too. And a link to my YouTube channel where I have like a ton of, of free stuff. Eventually I will get back to putting stuff up again. Uh, awesome. And, and as I always do, I'll put the links to all of those things in the show notes. So if you want to check out Robert's Instagram, his YouTube, or pick up some of his, his instructionals, just uh, pop open the show notes, go there, and I'll have the links right there for you. And of course, as always, I think all of our listeners know, but I got to plug my own premium service too. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com to check it out. We've got tons of long form conversations on the premium site, much more in depth course style, masterclass style lessons versus kind of the that we have here on the public side you can also if you're a premium member you can send us your rolling footage we'll break it down and get back to you really fantastic way to get good feedback from black belts around the world uh, that probably you wouldn't otherwise have access to so please do check that out if you haven't already it floats the show it's the reason you don't have advertisements on here is because people support us there so please consider it bjjmentalmodels.com to get signed up and you get a seven-day free trial so thanks again for everyone who checks that out and thanks of course to you robert always fun to, to have you by and hey yeah i gotta get you back at some point because i gotta know what did you think of obi-wan kenobi what do you think of andor you know it's just the star wars machine rolls on and we can't just let that one drop for sure and before i go also on my instagram for the people who don't follow me or haven't been to my page yet, there's a great reason to go on right now. I show the secret technique that Roared and Gracie used in ADCC 1997 in the <laughs> finals to defeat, well, actually in the finals, but also all his other opponents. It was banned from the IBJJF and it was hidden by the Gracies, but I found a VHS tape here in Singapore labeled Gracie Secrets, wherein the secrets were disclosed and now I'm making it known to the world. So <laughs> yeah, the, the legendary Horden Plata, I saw a very, very secret technique. I, I heard his banned in many, many provinces in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> the Horden Plata. That's, that's the name of the move for from now until forever. That's the name. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, do check that out. That is, that is a sweet technique though. I got to say, D don't know if I'll ever hit it on anyone beyond a day one white belt, but it was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, man. And of course to everyone listening, thanks to you as well. Talk to you guys next time. Take care.